Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing where we are seven months into the COVID-19 pandemic and the lessons learned thus far. To discuss these are IDSA board members, Dr. Jeannie Morazzo, with the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and Dr. John Lynch with the University of Washington. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Morazzo, I'd like to start with you. Much of the country shut down in mid-March. Now that we've been fighting this pandemic for over seven months, where are we in the battle against COVID-19 in terms of PPE, EUAs, and vaccines? By way of background, we are today, uh, when we're recording this on October 26th, not in a very good place relative to where we were in mid-March. In fact, I think um, most people are probably aware that in the past few days, we set a new record for daily cases reported in the United States with over 80,000 cases. And if you look at the US in the last 14 days, we are up by 32%. And unfortunately, we are finally sadly seeing an increase in deaths too. That's up by 12% over the last 14 days. So I think it's important as we think about the battle to set the stage that we're seeing not only regional resurgences, but we're seeing really a diffuse increase in cases that, that we just cannot deny. So the question really has two levels. If we, if we had sort of kept going at a stable level, where would we be versus what's really coming in the next several months? So if we continue on the trajectory we're on, we will run out of PPE. For sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that we had calculated really frightening uh, shortages of PPE, of course, back in the spring. Lots of press about that, particularly in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey. And we've had six months to prepare for a similar situation. And I have not really heard of a massive mobilization of PPE manufacturing, which I'm not really uh, clear why. And I, I and John may know more about that, so I will punt it to him in a minute. So I think we're okay right now, but we again are facing the winter season. We're facing the concomitant uh, plagues of influenza and COVID-19, hopefully, our efforts to control COVID-19 will spill over to influenza control, plus we have a vaccine, so hopefully people got vaccinated and maybe we'll see what the Southern Hemisphere saw, which was a decline in incidence of influenza, I hope. If that's the case, we may be okay in terms of PPE. The other positive thing about PPE is that we've gotten somewhat better at facilitating the progress of people through isolation by more savvy diagnostic testing algorithms. So in the beginning, there was a lot of reluctance to clearing people early in their course of illness from the really rigorous PPE requirements because there was so much fear about nosocomial transmission and healthcare workers acquisition, and that was completely justified. I think we now know that for the vast majority of people, unless they're significantly immunocompromised, that period of acute contagion is relatively limited. And so you can get people out of isolation a little bit sooner than we were doing early on in the epidemic. So I think, I think that's hopeful. In terms of the uh, emergency use authorizations, we've had a, a real rash of, of EUAs for diagnostic testing. Um, again, many of those tests 
are um, rapid tests, they may be antigen-based tests, they often are approved on the basis of their performance in symptomatic people, and yet they are rapidly ruled out to be used for screening in asymptomatic people. So there's a little bit of a catch up in our understanding of how well they perform in the ways that they're often being used. And a good example, of course, are athletics, right? A lot of athletes teams, a lot of teams that can afford it are using sequential PCRs, but many are sprinkling in these more rapid assays. And so I think it's great to have more tests and many people have argued that it doesn't matter if you have a super sensitive test, if you, if you test frequently. I think that argument is intellectually and theoretically correct, but I'm not sure it really accounts for the practicalities of dealing with all the positive tests that come in when you test frequently. It's sort of like the people who wanna do this don't have to deal with the reports of these daily tests. So I, I just wanna put that out there. So I think for diagnostic tests, it's encouraging, but it is contributing to a lot of confusion and a lot of need to interpret these tests. Um, of course, we've had EUAs for therapeutics, um, which I think are, are positive, the monoclonal antibodies, um, which I think have a lot of promise. Um, that's exciting. We're using more remdesivir, which I think is we know is, is more of a modest benefit at a very discreet period of illness. And then vaccines. Um, you know, we could spend the whole half hour talking about vaccines. I don't want to talk more because we have six more questions or five more questions. But I think that with phase three trials coming to an end soon, actually, in the next couple of months, we're going to get some really interesting signals on the vaccines. The implementation phase is a whole other story. And if we have time, we can come back to that. Thank you for that thorough answer, Dr. Morazzo. Dr. Lynch, turning to you now. As the days and weeks go on, we are still finding ourselves dealing with many of the same issues like inconsistencies in prevention policies and lack of testing availability. Why is that, Dr. Lynch? When I think about um, why are we dealing with this, you know, unfortunately, this pandemic, and I'm sure this is actually true for many pandemics, but really highlighted this year is the lack of leadership at the national level uh, that has led to, I think, a lot of confusion and lack of transparency. I'm sure there are many listeners on this podcast who can probably educate me about some of these specifics, but as someone who's been working in the area of PPE at the health system level, trying to improve access to testing in, in Washington State and the Northwest, we have definitely struggled with a lack of transparency and understanding of where PPE is going, where swabs are going, you know, where these tests are accessible. Uh, across the country. We often hear from frontline folks telling us, hey, we heard that there's going to be, for instance, antigen tests available, or we heard that there's going to be uh, flu vaccine available for different populations, and that someone is buying it. The federal government uh, is often cited, but without any uh, direction or clarification as to how much and at what time interval will uh, those materials be released. I think to some extent, this has to do with visibility into predictions. Dr. Marazzo mentioned, you know, different forecasts for looking at the fall. Unfortunately, many of those forecasts, as dire as they were thought to be and maybe uh, inflated as uh, hopefully in the spring, have really unfortunately looked like they're coming to pass. And it seems like there's a disconnect between belief in the data that we had at that time and through the course of the summer and uh, manufacturing to some extent. Uh, and the larger processes that really needed to play out across the country to provide us with sufficient PPE, uh, swabs, other testing technology. 
so that it would be freely and easily accessible, uh, you know, wherever it was needed. And so, you know, I think in, in just a sort of broad perspective, it's that lack of a national strategy that has led to the current situation and many of the challenges that we continue to face that unfortunately feel like the spring for many of us, which is really was never needed. Very frightening, Dr. Lynch. Thank you for your expertise. Dr. Morazzo, back to you. The fall COVID-19 surge expected in the next few months is predicted by many medical professionals to be the worst one yet. Are we better overall now at handling COVID-19, Dr. Morazzo? Yeah, I think that's just a great chance to be somewhat optimistic. The shout out to John, because uh, you know we're we're better at it because partly because of of heroic efforts uh, from people like him uh, and his colleagues. So I'll, I'll give I'll mention a couple of examples. Great analysis recently just published um, looking at the mortality rates um, in the NYU Langone system, comparing uh, the death rates in people hospitalized with COVID in the early part of the pandemic versus the latter part, so the last couple of months. And really a remarkable decline in the, um, the rate of mortality, even when you control for the fact that more young people are being hospitalized, probably even less sick people are being hospitalized. I think the mortality went down from the mid-20s to under 10%, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And I think we have to celebrate that. What is that about? Well, it's in part about therapeutics. Um, I do think remdesivir has made a difference. I think steroids have made a very big difference. But it's also about getting much better at the intensivist management of sick people. So we've learned over the last several months that <clears throat> trying to avoid intubation and keeping people on high flow oxygen to the extent that you can somehow may actually be a good thing in terms of heading off the cytokine storm. It's not really clear that the intubation does that. But once you do get intubated with this disease, there is a distinct uh, uh, sort of fork in the road. And so I think trying to keep people on high flow oxygen has been a big thing. The other thing is even if people are intubated, proning um, has been uh, really taken off in, in this pandemic more than any other. And so um, I think we should really celebrate the, the amazing job that the people in the hospital, the intensivists, the pulmonologists, all of these folks have done at getting this disease um, under control, early anticoagulation based on uh, signs of hypercoagulability, which we know uh, also um, predicts um, some of the really bad outcomes. So I, I think we are better at uh, managing the disease. The, the challenge remains, in my mind, um, outpatient treatment. I mean, we are seeing so much post-COVID uh, persistent syndrome with breathlessness, uh, mental fog, um, uh, fatigue, and, and, and we really don't know how to treat these people. We're giving them steroids, but I, I don't think we really understand how to do it. We also need better ways to keep people out of the hospital with acute COVID. And that's where I'm really hopeful for some of the therapeutic trials we're doing, particularly with monoclonal antibodies. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll not only have some data from those trials, but we also will start looking at oral agents for treatment and, and that will be uh, really promising. Thank you very much, Dr. Morazzo. Dr. Lynch, what treatments and protocols do we now have in our medical arsenals to better treat those with the virus? Are we now more equipped to save lives than we were seven months ago? Yes, absolutely. I think Jeannie just covered this really, really nicely. I think drugs like remdesivir, drugs like dexamethasone, other steroids, hopefully in the future, things like monoclonal antibodies will provide us some 
ongoing uh, and effective treatments for folks with COVID-19. But what I would, you know, really argue and look to is the expertise of our colleagues in critical care medicine, pulmonary, respiratory therapists, the nurses who have become accustomed and learn how to take care of patients with COVID-19 in various settings. You know, understanding when someone needs to be admitted, looking at saturation rates in ambulatory patients and acute care patients, and understanding where they are in their disease are all the results of incredible work. And unfortunately, too much experience over the last uh, six to nine months, depending upon where you are in the country. And I think it's that clinical expertise that we can point to in many cases that have made a huge difference in taking good care of patients. It's really uh, awful to think about that that expertise is gonna continue to be called upon as we head into the winter. And in some parts of the country right now, way too much. When I think about that, it is uh, very concerning. You know, as I think quoted in the Washington Post this morning, we can make beds, but it's the people, it's the healthcare providers, the docs, the nurses, the therapists, and others who are gonna be short uh, should we get into the numbers that we're potentially looking at. Thank you, Dr. Lynch, for that answer. Dr. Morazzo, we've already discussed with you the PPE situation, but has the hospital capacity and the PPE situation improved enough to deal with the surge and those that may follow? The simple answer is no, for a couple of reasons. John just mentioned you can create beds, um, but you can't create people. That is the crux of, of the challenge. And even creating beds, you know, let's be frank, um, Seattle had to mobilize to create a, a potential um, surge hospital, right, um, in, in, a, <clears throat> in the, the Navy facility uh, nearby. Other places, New York City was looking at the convention center. Thankfully, those did not need to be mobilized, but we may be in a situation where we're thinking about that again. And we're thinking about doing it in the winter, which we haven't done before. We started this in really in March, right? Late February, March. And by that point, we were sort of heading into the spring. So it's not an easy fix. I mean, the mobilization, even to create beds in, in many places, particularly in places that do not have the healthcare infrastructure that places like New York and Seattle do, right? I mean, you're thinking about some rural states, uh, the Dakotas in particular are having challenges. Wisconsin, I read yesterday, um, is facing a shortage of beds, as I believe Tennessee is. Um, these are places that don't have multiple regional hospitals or multiple healthcare systems within large cities or moderate sized cities. I mean, think about Montgomery in Alabama. We were in a very bad place at the peak of our, um, in Mobile, at the peak of our uh, early stage of the pandemic here, and we could easily be there again. So, so I don't think so. And then I want to return to John's comment about healthcare providers, right? I mean, remember healthcare providers are, even, even if we're great at preventing nosocomial transmission, and I think we've been much better at that, um, healthcare providers uh, are getting infected in the community. Uh, so when you have very high rates of background endemic transmission in your community, your healthcare providers are at risk from that very acquisition. So you can do the best job you possibly can or capable of in a hospital, and you're still going to have people at risk from friends, family, neighbors, et cetera, in the community. That's a big thing as this, as this continues to kind of explode and, and, and make its way through the population. We've also relied on, as many uh, systems have, uh, travelers, right? So you import people 
to help. Um, that's been great, but that also puts people in a very difficult position. You're asking people to come in and help in systems they may not really know. And, and that, that puts a lot of stress on the system as well. So I, I don't think that we are there. Um, and it really worries me uh, that we are going to be in a situation where people are, are facing these issues. And then the last thing I'll just mention is that we, we really have to mention pandemic fatigue and moral fatigue, <laughs> morale fatigue, I guess is a better, not moral fatigue, morale fatigue in, in our healthcare workers. I mean, everybody's tired of this. Um, obviously people are exhausted from the social isolation, but um, the, the healthcare workers in particular, I think are just, um, are really, we're asking a lot from them all the time. And uh, I, I really do worry about the capacity to keep people whole um, to keep morale good through the holidays, particularly when you can't really gather with your family without worrying about it. Um, you can't gather with your friends without um, really thinking that this could be an event of spreading. So, so I, I think all of these things are informing a real potential powder keg situation in our, in our healthcare systems, and, and it does keep me up at night. Understandably so, Dr. Morazzo. Thank you for those points. Dr. Lynch, are there specific scientific milestones or best practices that you can highlight? There's so many. It, is, it has been an incredibly wild ride over this last year, being a very, very small part of an enormous scientific pivot across the planet. Uh, has been amazing to watch, to see my colleagues in clinical medicine, in labs, in epidemiology, really drive uh, and focus the agenda uh, for, uh, you know, for COVID-19. And I think we can honestly see, as Jeannie mentioned, you know, some real bright lights across this with, uh, you know, drugs, a lot of the studies being done on, on drugs that are working, like dexamethasone, and drugs that aren't working, like hydroxychloroquine, when there's, you know, a lot of controversy out there. And it's really important to know what works, you know, remdesivir, dexamethasone, uh, potentially monoclonals, and what doesn't work. Uh, these are really, really important to get to those answers as fast as we have has been really remarkable. I think watching the vaccines, all the different candidates move through the phases in the fashion that they have and at the pace that they have is also uh, incredible to watch. So I think these are really, really important things um, in, in the therapeutic and treatment side. We also have to recognize there's a lot of data out there uh, that's emerging around personal protective equipment, uh, both in healthcare, but really importantly, I think that the mask issue and the data that's accumulated over the last, especially couple of months around the utility of masking in public as a major intervention that all of us can take to prevent increases in cases and what can happen when uh, that practice isn't in place. And I think that what's really informing the national conversation, as you can hear from our colleague, Dr. Fauci, um, and many others are around this particular topic. And, uh, and I think, again, is, is a result of incredible attention, incredible work in the research world uh, to get us answers that uh, those of us in the front line really need. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a, a number of scientific milestones that have helped us, uh, a number of best practices, especially masking, um, that have, uh, provide an opportunity for all of us uh, to turn this thing around. Thank you, Dr. Lynch. For this last part of the question, I invite both of you to weigh in. Dr. Morazzo, start with you. What needs to happen to conquer this virus? As John mentioned, masking up, um, really, really critical. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle just released a new paper, I think on Friday in Nature Medicine, talking about the fact that 
masking by the majority of people can literally save hundreds of thousands of lives. So they've updated their estimates. And I just don't think that we can talk about this enough to normalize this behavior in a huge culture shift. And we need to do it in a way that makes it okay for everybody to elect to mask um, and and to support everybody in in doing this. And so I think that this is a a really, really big, uh, big issue. I think the other thing that John mentioned that I just wanna um, build on is communication has been incredibly important and it's not been done consistently um, across settings. And I'm not just talking about the lack of national leadership and national coordination, which I think is at the root of our problem, of course, in controlling the virus. But even regionally and locally, you see um, some groups working very, very well together to communicate what's going on to the community and to communicate um, the strategy. And I, I will just say that I think Seattle is a great example. Public health, academics, political uh, leaders have worked together pretty seamlessly. Here at our uh, university, we have worked really closely with student representatives. We've had Zoom calls with student leadership to emphasize to them the importance of, for example, not having spring break, which initially was like, what? We're not having spring break. But you know, you, you can't talk to people and with people enough about this. And I think it's not just like people who in charge, but it's the stakeholders, um, whether it's parents, uh, whether it is um, council members, whether it's neighborhood leaders. And so I know these are huge demands on infectious disease specialist times who, who are already crazy uh, with trying to keep things together. But, but I think having voices um, out there in these interdisciplinary teams has been uh, inestimably um, critical. So, I mean, and and I do feel like we've had to step in, right, regionally and locally to create these foci of of strategy and leadership uh, in in the absence of a national response. And and that's great when we can do that, but not everybody has the resources to make that happen locally or the wherewithal or the political will. John's comments are perfect. Um, I would add this interdisciplinary communication, which of course he and the Seattle folks are, are truly truly masters of. And then I think continuing to remind ourselves that we are in this together. Um, This is not something that we're going to be able to conquer just because some brilliant person develops a brilliant molecular solution to whatever it is we're talking about, whether it's prevention, whether it's treatment. Everybody from implementation to um, to distribution, to communication, et cetera, is going to need to be involved. So it's going to be a really heavy lift for society. And it's great to have leaders, again, like John and, and the IDSA team um, to really help us with this. In fact, to lead it. Jeannie just summed it up incredibly well. And I'd like to thank her for leadership throughout this and her communication uh, throughout the pandemic. It has been vital. I'd also just like to mentioned that, you know, I don't get a chance this that often to say thank you to my infectious disease colleagues and my colleagues in infection prevention for the incredible work that all of them have done. Uh, I know we get thanks in our corridors and our offices and on email, but um, it's just really important to continue to support each other. All of us have been working extremely hard. I know many people will be listening to this podcast have been working nonstop for months and months and months, and we're not looking at a break coming anytime soon. And so all I can say is that I'm incredibly grateful to be part of this community, and I really appreciate all the work that each of you are doing. 
Thank you. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Morazzo and Lynch for their participation and expertise. For the latest information on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website. And don't forget to visit our real-time learning network at idsociety.org slash COVID-19 real-time learning network for all the latest COVID-19 resources. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic.